When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. Welcome to Think About It, and I'm really excited and pleased to welcome Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who is a colleague at New York University, a friend and a well-known commentator on all sorts of political issues. Uh, professor Ben-Ghiat is a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University. Uh, you're also an MSNBC opinion columnist, recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, and your book, Strongmen, Mussolini to the present uh, was issued, I think, originally in 2020, and then you wrote uh, an updated afterward epilogue in 2021. So first of all, welcome back to Think About It, Ruth. It's really wonderful to talk with you today. Thank you. Okay, Glad I, to have this conversation. So Ruth, you wrote a book <laughs> about strongman Mussolini to the present uh, with several historical protagonists and then people who are on the world stage today. And you spend a lot of your time thinking about their kind of nefarious mixture of what you call their charisma, which is a mixture of seduction and threat, and why they appeal to people so much. And I, as I told you, I had occasion to reread this 1926 book by the journalist, publicist, polemicist H.L. Mencken, who wrote a book in 1926 called Notes on Democracy, which no one really picked up and people didn't really appreciate it's considered a fairly anti-American book. And in that book, he asks a basic question, which is sort of the other side to your book, Strongman. He says, people are generally not interested in democracy. They don't value it. They don't see that it does anything for them. They want safety. They want security. They want lower taxes. They want higher wages. They want to feel safe about themselves and possibly see a better future for their children, but really their community. And he said what that leads to is that they regularly and routinely will vote for politicians who are openly corrupt, who have been proven to have been corrupt, who actually promise them things that are really massively against their interests, that will lead them into war, into recessions. And they do it, and Mencken, he's a polemicist, they do it happily and with excitement and and I'll stop and end my question here. And he said, the great misunderstanding is that people have an innate desire for freedom. They are inherently democratic. And he said, there's a huge misunderstanding about the people, so to speak. So I want to start us out by saying you focused on these people who seduce the masses, let's say, or lead the masses. And Mencken says, there's no one who's being seduced. They voluntarily and happily opt into this. So I would be curious sort of how to start there, sort of, you know, because that's kind of the, sh the shadow or the other side of your book is all the people who enable 
and facilitate these uh, these these people you call strongmen. I I do you know I, I have these protagonists, but uh, each one of them, whether it's Mussolini or Pinochet or whoever Putin, um, it, it's a way to talk about uh, the tools of rule they use and uh, the enablers who are the fellow corruptors, the propagandists. So one of the messages of the book is, of course, the strongman figures have, they set the tone, they they get people to be their worst selves, they remake, like Trump is doing with the GOP, makes remakes it in his image. Um, so, it, you know, not that it wasn't corrupt and racist before, but it, it, at new levels, and, and leads they lead people to do things they never thought possible. But... Um, it's the enablers who are ready for that kind of thing. Um, but but Mencken, it's everything that he says is true um, in, in that um, we, today we, we think um, a lot about because authoritarianism is spreading and there are these uh, characters around now who are appealing to new generations like Bukele of El Salvador who literally had a, a Twitter or X post, he says, I'm the coolest dictator. Wow. Um, and he's into cryptocurrency. So the, the appeal of the, they know how to channel the things of the moment to appeal to people. But another reason people are, are gravitating to them is that they're finding uh, that democracy is um, unfulfilling. So there's that. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I would say is, the date of this book was what, you said 1926? That's, so Mussolini was there in power. He had just declared a dictatorship, but Hitler wasn't there. You know, Stalinism hadn't started in earnest. And so we see even today where we're in the middle of a, of a, a global re renaissance of nonviolent protests where people in Iran risk their lives and other places coming out. They do want freedom if they especially if they've seen the opposite and mm. we're very vulnerable mm -hmm. in america and this is typical that this was an american text because we could take for granted uh these freedoms so it's not that mencken's not correct but the the desire for freedom was very different in 1945 after the ravages uh, yeah. the world saw the ravages produced by two you know fascist strongmen for sure and and japan and all of that. That's actually an interesting and nice corrective that Mencken generalizes constantly, says the people, people, and what you're saying, uh, the people are not the same. They're historically dependent. The context changes something. Their experience shapes yeah. them. He would agree with that. Um, and what you said in your answer right now, democracy is unfulfilling in some ways. You also quote, um, and you sort of explained it a bit more, the philosopher Martha Nussbaum said, uh, the liberal values of democracy don't have to be tepid and boring. And to sort of stay with that, you're saying that sometimes historical experience reminds people of how valuable all sorts of freedoms can be. And people who live in and with those freedoms, they don't see them and recognize them. They find them maybe tepid and boring. It's like, why would we keep on voting for this? We want something better. Yeah, and, and we see with, the, there's a lot of debates right now uh, with the eternal puzzling puzzlement of people of how Trump is still, uh, you know, interesting and we could say seductive to people despite all his legal problems and failures, um, and that people criticize the press 
uh, for still being, you know, dazzled by Trump, who drives clicks and all of this kind of this model of politics, the politics of spectacle. And Bolsonaro was very good at it versus kind of uh, you can almost get used to that. And then a return to kind of, uh, you know, people say Biden's boring because he's just like passing huge amounts of legislation. He's he's you know, he might wear aviators from time to time, but he's not doing the politics of spectacle and he's punished for it. Uh, because mm -hmm. and think about Berlusconi in Italy, who permanently changed the culture uh, to have different requirements of leaders to be interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this goes with the we factored in is also the state of, of, of the media ecosystem of that time. Mm -hmm. And so we are in the middle of you know the selfies. It's the, the instant you know Instagram, TikTok, uh, very rapid attention span and. Uh, politicians like like Trump who is a man of the media even though he's not young he's extremely good at capturing attention so that that kind of you know democracy is not supposed to be spectacular it, it, it's it and and one thing we do need to do is actually take a cue not in the negative emotions and the hate of course not that uh, authoritarians and populists um, illicit, but actually taking a cue from uh, to use emotion uh, in a positive way to create communities of belonging, to get people excited, uh, using symbols and slogans, things that it's been authoritarians and uh, that have done that much better. And especially for young people, they they want that. They kind of need that because that's what they have in their popular culture. It's interesting. I think in the end of the epilogue to your book, Strongman, you say that that we need a positive message that people need something to identify with and um, celebrate or advance rather than to have something they're working against and democracy probably won't win many people to say you have to vote this way because otherwise things will get worse and that doesn't motivate yeah, but, people yeah i'm glad you mentioned that because uh, this is also going to be uh, most likely my next book but we're in this moment because we, we've also, and it's not just in the States, uh, there's, when you're assaulted by authoritarians and threat and propaganda, um, you, you can become self-protective, you can retrench. And we saw this, you, it, there's, a million, there's many, many uh, manifestations of this right now. For example, um, in, in Hungary, the, the opposition coalition during the last elections, they had very progressive people, but they also included Jobbik, a very far right party and it backfired on them. There's a kind of retrenchment uh, out, of, out of fear or caution. Um, the same in media, uh, take CNN, which it has jettisoned some of its more progressive people, uh, closed down its uh, media investigation, reliable sources, and has a whole bunch of uh, Republicans on now. It's a, it, that's a self, kind of self-protection that that comes in. And Sam Moyne uh, just published a book where he, he talks about, um, his is mostly historical, the liberalism of fear, that we're in this moment where it's all about defensiveness. And, and that's, that's in the States, it, that's logical that it's like that. It's all about defending democracy, shoring up the checks and balances. But I'm, I'm going to argue in my book, and this is not enough. And, and the, the conclusion to Strongman is kind of the start of the next project in a way, as that happens, right, with books, 
that it can't be enough because you need a positive ideal and you need to reform democracy in ways that are going to make it appealing to new generations. It has to be visionary. Um, and we know from, you know, we need, it has to address climate, social justice, like the crowds who are uh, thronging the streets all over the world are telling us what they want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. So it can't just be um, retrenchment and defense, so let's, as necessary as that is. Um, the, uh, Richard Vordy published his book, Achieving Our Country, I think around 2000, where he has a paragraph that more or less anticipates Trump and says there will be a strong man who will demonize minorities and people will flock to him because the other side doesn't offer anything. And he saw the 90s as the progressive liberals giving up sort of a progressive politics in favor of what he probably would have called identity politics. And he said they gave up on the flag, on the family, on the union, on the July 4th, on being American. All of this is negative. This is all conservative land and we don't do any of this. And I want to stay for a moment with this sort of to place hope in the position of fear. And when you said earlier spectacle, how do you counter that? Because you said, Biden, you, we don't necessarily think, can we generate a candidate who's as um, appealing as what you say, seductive, as much of a spectacle that captures the people's imagination and the media just feeds on that. And it's the way the media is. A spectacular candidate would be more exciting. Um, I think Obama, in a way, had for a moment a kind of this dimension of not a spectacle, but someone who was very attractive. There was a novelty, star. a star, yeah, a star, star, star power. Yeah. Let's see the allure, what you call charisma. So how do you counter that? Um, and don't just, um, because you don't want to counter spectacle by topping it and getting to more spectacle. Yeah, I think, you know, it's such a, there's two different ways you can go with this. One is that, um, Stars become stars both, let's say, because they have a, a they can have a personal charisma rooted in their person, fine, the way they look and, and the gaze. But what are the values that we are considering to be star-like? Mm. Um, Trump, Trump, uh, you know, and and his his kindred spirits, they they um, they kind of make the spectacle out of hate, out of saying negative things. Um, why can't we have a spectacle out of saying positive things mm -hmm. and, and really positive emotions, building people up, having hope and love. And this has been used, you know, there, there is a political star in Turkey. He's uh, Ekrem Imamoglu, who was the head of the opposition. He's the mayor of Istanbul. And in 2019, he won that mayorship uh, in, a, in a hostile you know, context by having this doctrine of radical love. And he's young, he's a devout Muslim, but he's liberal. And he went around, he didn't want to have rallies. He practiced anti-authoritarian politics. He hugged people. He walked around the streets. He, he told Erdogan's supporters that he loved them. This was a huge success, enormous success. So four years later, he's so threatening that when uh, the presidential elections were going to be held, and Erdogan's, you know, there trying to game it up the system, uh, he put a jail sentence over the head of Imamoglu so he couldn't run. So he couldn't be chosen as the candidate. Otherwise, they would have won because he's a star, and he's wow. a star based yeah. on positive things. Yeah. So, so that's, that's one 
thing that one can do without having it to be a counter spectacle, but also take stock of how have we changed that the only people who are worthy of attention are these like negative brutes, that there's something very wrong there. Right. Right. That's interesting. That is it. But it's also important that you said to elevate. There are examples that actually can work and it's not you have to outdo the spectacularity or the kind of the demagoguery by being more of a demagogue, more of a spectacle. Um, Another thing in a lot of these books that are these kind of um, diagnoses of what's happening with democracy and actually Mencken, when he wrote this book, he said, this is a diagnosis and people will fault me for not having a way out of this. And he said, that is not my job, actually. And then I looked at a bunch of the books that have been published over the last few years, how democracies fail, these kinds of books. And a lot of them say an act or exercise democratic behavior, as you said, strengthen democratic norms and vote a lot. And basically Mencken said, no, this is not capturing what you're describing, which is the psychology of this, which is not the mechanics of it. And he said, democracy will not be saved by more democracy. Um, and there's the kind of, that's kind of the hope to say, go to the polls, do that, and then they will just end up, the, the, the tr- freedom will win out. And he was very skeptical of this kind of solution to say democracy will save democracy. He said other things have to happen. I mean, you already pointed to one or two of those things, but I would be curious about one other dimension that other people say, you know, voting is important, democratic norms, um, unwritten norms, checks and balances, and also education is usually mentioned. They say people need to be taught what it means to be a citizen, that you have responsibilities, what is democracy? What do you think about the role of that, which is, I guess includes the media and all of public and private education? How important is that for a democracy to survive or prevail, that people are taught how to think about themselves in a democracy? I think long-term for the health of civic society, it's very important because what authoritarians do from Mussolini and Hitler up to Trump, they're actually engaging, they're not only doing propaganda uh, on specific things like you're supposed to hate the Jews or whatever, Bolsheviks, they're actually emotionally re-educating people. Do because it's very, you know, you have to get past certain amounts of taboos in an authoritarian society where you're going to, you know, it's your, your neighbor, the person who's at the market with you on Sundays, and now you're going to be informing on them, or you're going to watch uh, or help them be carted off to jail or harm them physically. That's what, you know, these fascist dates were asking people to do. So, and Trump has been, this is terrifying, uh, Trump has been telling people since 2015 using his rallies as radicalization vehicles that it's okay to hurt people. And he literally will say things since 2015 over and over again. The problem today is no one wants to hurt uh, each other anymore. Or, um, you know, the whole discourse about, uh, you know, how that led to January 6th, how, you know, there's like he demonizes people. So he's been doing this emotional re-education. So how do we counter that? Now, obviously, the old school, which when you had Nazism and you had denazification, that's not what we're doing here. Um, so, so, but you see that after dictatorships, you do have to have a kind of re-education in people, notions of privacy, notions of accountability. Um, I, you know, the press doesn't know how to be, they, they, the press was reduced to propagandists. Now, we're not there. We're in a democracy that's under assault. 
But uh, so education um, to remind people through bridge building, um, you can you can use it in our situation to kind of turn things around. But another point I want to make, it's not enough because that's very didactic. To your point about like, is voting enough building on Mencken? You need voting, but you need a movement. You need excitement. And so Poland just had a big victory against uh, many odds. And what did they do? They, they had the biggest voter turnout since 1989. Everybody knew the stakes were high, but they had a movement and they had hearts go back to the love thing. They talked about social welfare and they had concrete, you know, um, economic and social plans, but they got people together in a positive way. And Donald Tusk, actually, I wrote about this for my uh, Substack newsletter. He actually used what uh, messaging experts call messaging from inevitability. He said, this is change is happening. We can't stop it. We are part of the change. It's coming. And he made people feel hopeful. And so if you look at the, the March of a Million Hearts, they called it the March of a Million Hearts. You could think, well, how hokey, you know, the whole love thing, people get very cynical. But so what they did there, they had an electoral strategy, they had a big coalition, but they had a movement. What will happen to this movement after? I don't know. But they had it uh, for the purposes of this election and it worked. But and, and let me stay with this one thing. I've never, I've actually not heard about this term, emotionally re-educating. It's quite interesting that you're saying what, I think what's important about that to me, you're saying this is a program to educate people. It's not just you say one thing and then you sort of trigger them to do all sorts of things, but you're saying you're emotionally re-educating. So we have to also emotionally educate people. And what would that mean to be attached to what or to be hold on to, you said, uh, sort of positive terms, privacy, accountability, that they have to be reinvested, I think, with something that is of value to us? Or how does this work? You know what I mean? Like, how does... Yeah, I, and I haven't, I, I, I don't know clearly, because what I've studied is what happens. I, I'm and it's still studying, because we, we have not, people dismiss Trump uh, as a propagandist, and only, it's going to, it's a classic situation, is only when it's, I don't know and say it's too late, but only when it's quite late, people will realize that he had a whole plan, he was not a clown, um, and that truly uh, he and his fellow Republicans are re-educating people, not only to think that violence is positive and patriotic, and that's how you get to January 6th, uh, the thugs who were there, who were in jail, they become political prisoners. And now he has a January 6th choir, which sacralizes the violence. It's totally fascist. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. He goes to mm -hmm. Waco, Texas, mm -hmm. you know, a site, right. you know, that's extremist violence pilgrimage site. And he brings the choir. I mean, if you, if you, if you study fascism, it's like, I see, I see what you're doing here. So wow. what the opposite, but, we, but we're still a democracy. So 2017, 2020, uh, we just had the biggest protests in American history. So we're not we're not all gone. <laughs> There's plenty of right. opposition and love out there. You know, what re-education would mean in this context is more, there's a lot of work, you know, how do we, how do we get the Trumpers to see the light and disengage before it's too late? That's where, that's where we are. If you think about that, how do you reach people who are sort of 
on that side who who's, who think he's broken some taboos, he's liberated us from these strictures to think about things, and he's also given permission to do things that people consider quite normal and usual, perhaps, or they're necessary to defend yourself. Say, like, you can fight back, you can use violence, always in the name of something greater. When you think about that, how do you reach those people? What is this, the story to tell them? What is the value that they would gain by actually coming to the other side and turning against this? Because they're being a given identification, as you, the title of your book says, they're given the idea of strength, um, they're, giving ex they're given excitement. Um, and as you said a bit earlier, uh, they're giving something that's fulfilling because it invests them with this kind of energy. This is new and there's something that's changing versus the status quo. And I, how do you reach somebody who says, none of these things that you're proposing would benefit me? I'm under threat for reasons ABC and this guy's taking care of those and I'm not really interested in those other things because they're really not benefiting me. Yeah, it's hard because, um, <clears throat> excuse me, one, one thing that you can do, and this isn't the perfect group to go do it with, is use outcome arguments. For example, if you're trying to reach, uh, I'm a bit frustrated that, you know, the business people in this country are not, uh, you know, doing enough uh, to, to kind of combat what is coming down the road or what is already here. And with them, you could use outcome arguments showing how, you know, these myths of, this one reason I wrote Strongman, the myths of, you know, it's good for business, uh, trains are running on time, Autobahn are great. Um, you, you show that indeed, as I do in my book, that, you know, most autocrats plunder businesses and political violence is bad for business. In our case, gun violence, which the GOP uh, staunchly, you know, won't do anything about is bad for business and give mm. them statistics. Mm. So those are outcome arguments. Um, and you can try and reach like people who, um, who there are a lot of people who secretly want to escape, you know, this hellhole that the, the Trump road to hell, uh, maybe independent voters or a lot of Republicans who don't see themselves in MAGA and outcome arguments like is this what you really want do you really want political violence do you really want uh, people being threatened how about mike pence having having you know trump tried to have him killed what do you really think of that um you can do that and with the with the trumpers the maga people um i i had uh dr stephen hassan who's a cult expert and was in a cult and it's very interesting and i did my own work on this whether you come from the cult framework or uh, how authoritarian leader cults um, deflate or disinformation, they all reach the same conclusions. If you're trying to get uh, to reach somebody to communicate with them, you have to approach them in an open-minded way. You can't judge them. You can't shame them. Um, you have to ask them, you know, how, how did you come to believe this? That like vaccines cause autism or whatever, or George Soros is under everybody's couches. Um, what are your what are your sources, but not in a confrontational way? Uh, uh, it's a process, and everybody, regardless of their discipline, the approach they you they come from, they all uh, come to the same conclusion that that's what you have to do. Um, that takes a lot of forbearance sometimes to argue or talk with people when you sort of say, where do you come up with this idea? And then they're going to say, well, and what do they usually say, do you think? Where do they come up with these ideas? Mencken says, 
they come up with it wherever they want to because they don't want to do the work of thinking through complex things. As soon as there's a simplified answer to say vaccines are bad and dangerous, these groups control the media, these people are against us, it's a sim the simplicity is very appealing and yeah. people don't want to do the work. So when you talk to somebody, this presumed person, and they say, what do you get for your information? They say, oh, I heard this on the news. And Mencken would say, they don't think more and it's not what they can do. They have busy lives, they're not trained to do this. This is not what they want to do. So how do you get them to say, break this down a little bit, how you got your information and see how this is maybe not rational, reasonable, logical, or even advantageous? I mean, I think that when they have to be in, in the right, because a lot, a lot of people do come out of this. And again, we're not in a, we're not in a Nazi state or North Korea. We're in a completely, it's by the way, it's totally extraordinary what Trump uh, pulled off uh, in an open society with a pluralistic media environment. He got like, what is it, 60 million people to believe in a very big verifiable fact uh, that it was fiction about the 2020 election extraordinary. I, I don't actually know any leader who's done that in a, in a democracy, uh, pulled off such a scam. Um, and of course, it's a, it, it, his success is because all of he has, we only have two parties and, uh, you know, the Republicans are a giant party and they all agreed to back his lie. Um, that helps a lot. But so you, they have to be ready to, to listen to you. And so sometimes you can't reach them. Uh, I had this with my mother who lives in England, and she was uh, a conservative, uh, a huge fan of the Queen. Uh, house was always full of royal royalist memorabilia. And, and as such, uh, a fan of the British Empire and slightly racist, she, during the pandemic and the lockdowns in her small village in England, she started watching Russia Today, and she became totally radicalized. And, it, and she embraced uh, great replacement theory and the whole thing. And, and so it was very, very difficult to get through to her. And I would even try and send her pieces that I personally had written her daughter. And she said, you're just fake news. And she had voted for Brexit. So she already was kind of set up before the pandemic to believe these things. But then she started seeing the outcome, how Brexit was kind of ruining, you know, a lot of small fisheries and businesses. And she came to regret that. And that one kind of puncture started her to get disillusioned. But really, it was banning Russia Today in Great Britain that did it because she stopped talking about Putin as her hero. It was very interesting, but she, for a long time, when Russia Today was her favorite fair and she was stuck inside, she would just parroting uh, Kremlin talking points every day. Let me, I mean, first of all, that sounds really difficult to have to talk to your mother who says what you're writing is fake news. That's, you do spend a lot of time researching and crafting what you're writing to be dismissed in out of hand. So let's just acknowledge that. That sounds really difficult. <laughs> and. One thing to maybe from this this little story. So she saw Brexit actually wasn't good for her or for the country or sort of they were disadvantages. Um, Angela Merkel gave an interview, I think, about a year ago or so and said, what how do you keep on selling democracy to the people? She, it's not the phrasing it is, but she actually answered in a way and said people benefit from democracy. They're better off. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was interesting, but also problematic in some ways, because if you vote for democracy because you personally benefit, democracy is not only that, I assume. I, I assume democracy, and you're trained in political theory, I don't really know, but I, I would assume it's also 
it also is benefiting people unlike you, very much unlike mm -hmm. yourself. And how do you convince a person who say you should actually be for democracy, even if your life stays exactly the same, but something will be better for other people who you may have very little to do with or you may actually dislike strongly? Well, but see there, you you get somebody to think about rights and responsibilities to others if there's a civic culture of empathy, of altruism, and other values that um, that authoritarians do their best through this propaganda, through emotional re-education, whatever we're going to call it, to kill, to kill off. That's one of the first things they do is... They do it in many ways. First, by you know, if they're if it's a very violent thing, it's survival of, of each one, and then they force, of course, you know, in extreme circumstances, you're you're having to uh, denounce your own family. Um, even if you go into exile, they go after your family that's left, you know, in in the country. So they're trying to divide, and so the whole premise of authoritarianism is these vertical um, relationships of the people and the leader, right? And the disruption or destruction of the horizontal networks among people mm -hmm. of solidarity, kindness, empathy. So they, you know, they take over uh, the, the civic space and they, you know, make these like strength through joy and these kind of mass organizations that have these rituals that are all about the Fuhrer or whoever the Fuhrer is in that country or Putin. Um, so, so the it's the values are fundamental and so that's why again to go back to your question how are we supposed to do this we're not going to have re-education camps for democracy uh, um, or even education camps for democracy people are proposing uh, people who write about the crisis of democracy in our country uh, for example a re-establishment uh, Biden just established this uh, a version of the climate conservation corps And there's other, uh, Richard Haas, who was until recently the head of the Council on Foreign Relations, has a book about, um, it's like the, the, the eight or ten like responsibilities that democratic citizens should have. And he advocates for restoration of the civilian conservation court. These kind of cross-class, cross-regional things that bring people together to do service. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So there's these schemes out there to... To, to get people into spaces where they're going to talk again. But it's interesting when you just mentioned that sort of the, that I think people lack opportunities to think they have the agency to shape the spaces and the world they live in sometimes. I think yeah. there's a lot of passivity. And I think um, if I may for a moment talk about the university and education in general, I think there's something sometimes about education, which I think all of us are in the process of rethinking after COVID and in general. And there's something about coming into a room, sitting down and waiting for the class to begin and there's a lecture or there's a seminar and somehow this kind of delivering of content, you absorb it, you get a grade for it. It's a very passive mode. And I think there's something, if you think, you know, our children are now grown up and when I was young, when my kids were little, I think part of it is they say, you help set up the room, you actually rearrange what you want. And I think this contributing to your space gives you a sense, I'm actually helping shape design the world I live in versus this is the world given to me by these institutions. And all I do is do this role that's been assigned. Mm -hmm. And I think what you just said about Richard Haas saying, what are the responsibilities? I think they have to be given to people, not just as this is another burden, another task, something you have to do every morning, but rather this is how you actually shape the places you're in 
and the world you're in versus this is something you have to do and then it's not going to look like it's something that another person designed. But this kind of co-creation. And in universities, I think we're all thinking constantly, aren't universities supposed to be one of those experimental labs for democracy where some of these things get tested often to the breaking point, but get tested of what would it mean to actually have both the rights to do all sorts of things and talk, but also some responsibility for shaping that space. I agree. And, and that's, that's also why autocrats immediately go after universities. It's interesting. They don't only ban content. Um, and we, and you know, you see this in Florida here in GOP led states, which are laboratories of autocracy. They also encourage behaviors and they set a kind of culture that um, in encourages compliance and fear and intimidation and bullying and that kind of thing. So it's not just content, it's um, behavior because they want to encourage certain kind of behaviors. Um, and, and so you, you have both when you are trying to, these are people, these are instances where um, you like in Chile where they had a democracy and then they had a coup and coups are coups are interesting case studies because they're they're so quick that's the whole point of them they're overnight and then you've got to like of course you you, you had it because you already had uh, support in, in even if a military coup you had support in civilian quarters for a coup but you still the mass of the population they didn't go through you know, a Trump there degrading democracy or a Mussolini degrading democracy, it's instant. And so then you, it's very interesting to study those things and see what they do first. And how do you um, explain all these things to people? I mean, I think your book is really uh, laudable because it's written in a very clear way. And, you know, I hesitate to say this accessible because we use this word sometimes in academia to say, oh, you're writing for the people or something, not for your peer group. <laughs> But I do think there's something to that that's deeper and more profound than just saying, oh, we are academics and we're trying to translate our knowledge. Um, and partly Mencken made me think about that because he said people don't want to understand complexity. They actually don't even want to know it's complexity. They want to be told the opposite. Okay. It is not complex. It's a simple and you got the answer. And when someone comes along and says, well, think again, they don't want to hear that. They say, no, 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 no. I've made up my mind. And Another, yeah. And one other addition to that, when someone has made up their mind, I think what you said earlier, it's so hard to talk to people who are in this kind of media bubble. I think what's very valuable to them is that their peers stay with them. So that you said 60 million people believe the election was a fraud. They actually fear more that their peers will shun them by having a different opinion. And the opinion yeah. itself doesn't matter as much. The opinion is almost currency to say, hey, Ruth, we sort of share this one thing and then we can move on even when I'm sort of a little bit doubtful, but I say, well, at least we agree on this one thing. It, it's a, it creates a bond. I think it's like high school, perennial high school, eternal high school. Yeah. The, the, the complexity thing is true. And I had that with my mother who, who during that period had no tolerance for um, me point, me pointing out holes in her argument. And then eventually as she came out of it, that's how she was able to say, yeah, well, I regret, you know, voting for Brexit, which was a big deal that she said it. Um, but uh, in terms of the, the, the messaging, the accessibility, um, I'm, all, I'm, I'm very proud to write for the public and be accessible because I feel I, about 50% of my time now is 
uh, is giving interviews and I'm also doing TV. So it's very interesting. The talk about uh, the difficulty of being complex. It, it's one thing that we we're having an exchange of ideas and there's time and room to unpack things and you know go different places. TV, you have you know. Sometimes I'll be on by myself and it's like a 10 minute segment because I've been doing this a while and some of the hosts are extremely intellectual, but other times you've got like three minutes. And so yes. on the one hand, it, it's helpful to making your thoughts clear because if you're going to go on and be like all nebulous, it doesn't work. And you have to choose your language very carefully, especially if you don't have time. So it makes you think more about the language you, you're using and and even like, you know, are you talking in the active voice or that kind of thing? So I think it, it's been positive for me. With it comes, you know, and I just personally don't care anymore because our political situation is so critical. You know, people think you've gone over to the dark side. <laughs> and again, I, I, don't, I don't care uh, because I would rather be reaching and helping people. And I receive so many uh, emails and things every day from regular people saying, you helped me understand. I didn't understand before. And now I can explain to my aunt or whatever. So it's a, it's a, it's a journey. It's been a journey since 2016. And the last thing I want to say is I think a lot of what I, the reason I started giving so many interviews is that I, I saw that journalists who are very hardworking and do fantastic job and I don't like to criticize journalists because a lot of them are being threatened all the time now but I wanted to educate journalists because they didn't have any reference point in America for authoritarianism hmm. they didn't know how to talk about Trump and assess the dangers and, and of course as we know they've been very slow to, to want to say certain words and so I that so in giving the interviews I was not just trying to reach the public of the journalist, I was trying to reach the journalist and give them almost like language and and concepts. And that's what I've been doing now. It's like seven years. And, and, and to tell me one thing about how you went through this process to learn how to be more immune to the kind of um, things you're exposed to, because people disagree with you and they don't just disagree a little bit. It's vehement and aggressive and um, hurtful. And in some ways, I'm curious how you find your sort of stability or community to say, so you're saying your mission sort of educate people and people respond and say, this is helpful. This has been helpful for me. Well, you use the word mission and I just feel, I feel like this is in my case, um, I studied fascism for many years. I wasn't very, um, conscious or even that interested for a long time in American politics. My parents are American and spent a lot of time in living in Italy. And then I saw all these things that were so familiar to me in these dynamics. And I thought that I had the skill set to do something about it in, in, on an individual level. And so that became like just a, a, a mission I took on and it's guided me. And, and I think, I think, you know, also, uh, I'm in a phase of life where I, I could, I could do that. I, I didn't have a small child. Um, also, I think if I were 25, I would, it would be more difficult to just receive the hate mails and file them away. And I really don't think about them, uh, you know, twice. I, I just I have an email folder and they go there and unless there's something particularly threatening. 
I, I just, I'm just uh, okay with it. I'm, I'm very resolute because that, and I think that studying threat and knowing why authoritarians and their followers threaten, if you got in such a state that you were silencing yourself, they would win. That would be a victory for them. And so knowing that, in, in my case, I'm just able to keep going and do it. And it's not a burden. It's just what I do. But that's important what you just said, that an intimida intimidation and threatening is one of their tools. So to give in, it's difficult. But if you gave in, you would actually let them win on that terrain. So in some ways to say, I understand what they're doing. It's a strategy. It's actually as much about you as not about you. It's just another strategy they're using to yeah. shut you down and to say you can maybe in some at some moments depersonalize. But I want to go to one thing you just said. If you were 25, it would be different. And since we both teach at the <laughs> university and you said there are many protest movements around the world, they are largely driven by younger people, by the next generation yeah. for obvious reasons. But I want, what would you say to a young person? And we're living in, you know, as people say with, I see, sometimes I think a kind of facility that belies the complexity in polarized times, that in the university and outside, sometimes it is very difficult right now to, or to say things that are uncomfortable or unpleasant or absolutely intolerable to the so-called other side. What would you say to a 21-year-old woman right now to say, how do you maintain this when you will actually experience very, very severe criticism? And Daniel Allen at Radcliffe and Harvard said to me once, Uli, the difference between you and me and doing any of this work is I get rape threats right away, you don't. And it's very targeted on gender, which you also bring up in Strongman, that gender is always an, a ready-made easy target for these people. But what would you say to a 21-year-old And I'm using deliberately a person who identifies as a woman to say, how do you actually maintain your self-regard, your self-reliance, your understanding of these things when the headwinds are so strong? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not that not that 21-year-olds cannot be incredibly mature. It's just uh, you don't have as much life experience and as much... Um, perspective on things. Things can be very dramatic, right? Um, not that they can't at, at our age either. But one thing is uh, to to try your best if if you're getting um, feedback that's based on racial or gender stereotypes or a combination of both or religious slurs to try and depersonalize it. Because, like, you know, it's like when people write me and say, Jew, you should be in the ovens or you're working for Soros. It's like, really, that's all you got? You know, it's that's just not original at all. Um, and you see that these are just people who are parroting things. And especially if you know the history, like, okay, now it's Soros. It used to be Rothschild, you know. It's the same stuff over and over again. Um, that, that makes it uh, a little... A little easier to to not um, you almost don't take it seriously I, and and I don't mean it's not worthy of serious each each threat and each hate mail is a a symptom of a certain culture and they are and they're taking the time to look you up and personalize the message to you often um, some of them even create these uh, fake email address they're really emails like uh, somebody writes me once in a while and his email is you know, Ruth is a, and they have a slur at gmail.com. And I was like, 
you took the time to create an email, uh, a new Gmail with that. Well, you know, that's, that's like that they've got time to do that. So you, so the kind of not taking it personally, it's very difficult. And if I were 21, I probably couldn't do it, but that's one thing you could say to somebody. In your own role, you said you're 50% of your time, you're, um, you seem to have a kind of um, <laughs> great patience to educate people who are maybe starting in positions that you feel are kind of like with your mother, obviously, there's a different dimension to it. You have an emotional bond with other people. Do you feel there are moments when you give up and say, oh, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing redemptive here, I cannot reach these people? Or do you feel um, this is not the point? It's not the point to win a victory, convince somebody to just to put out information that they may at a different moment than access. The latter, but you know, what, what happens also is, um, I was saying before that, um, the media ecosystem, if it's under duress can become more self-protective. So I would go on Fox news, for example, but I'm not asked to go on Fox news and I'm pretty much, I'm on MSNBC a lot, you know, until, until the middle East crisis, I was on three times a week. Um, but always MSNBC and not the centrist networks, the legacy networks. They don't ask me because I'm very blunt. You know, I'll go and I'll say, guess what? GOP is a bunch of thugs. And I could do that at MSNBC. And perhaps that's too much for other places. So I'm not in a, what I'm trying to say is I'm not in a position often enough for my liking that I'm actually speaking to the people who are in a very different mindset. And, and that's that's not just me. That's a structural problem. It's it, that's not that's not good. Right. Right. So they're not even hearing. Even an interesting thing. Sometimes I go on PBS, and I I went on and the news hour, and I was quite blunt. And I got a lot of emails from people, and they they were not hate emails. They said I was shocked at hearing you. I never heard that before. And I thought. Boy, if the PBS viewer never heard it, then we're really like, there's a lot more work to be done than I thought. But maybe also think um, that each PBS viewer has someone in their family or a neighbor or a colleague or something who needs to hear that. So yeah. it's sort of you're just the, you know, one instance in this large chain. I'm, I do want to ask you to sort of you brought up... Um, you know, Trump is very uh, sort of adept at social media. And in some ways, there's sort of it's a generational thing, or maybe not, but maybe legacy media isn't what you need to be on. Maybe it's actually yeah. other media, right? So in some ways, we TikTok. do. Yeah, TikTok, because TikTok is where most people that I know, uh, who yeah. are students of mine get their news, not just the entertainment, but their news. And in some ways, I think this idea that legacy media, which has not done, I think, a totally great job to be immune to the spectacle of you know, of sort of proto-fascism to say, like, actually, maybe social media is the place to, for what we call also what you call the kind of emotional re-education to actually also give people some other stories to attach to some other ideas, yeah. something hopeful. And I think that's maybe the direction to take rather than to turn back and say, I want to get into this, you know, yeah. this more mainstream outlet, right? Agree, agree. Uh, but yes, TikTok and Instagram are the places to be, yeah. I would say. And Twitter, I, I mean, was very, very useful in, because you could direct message people. If they followed you, me and many others built these big communities of support and information and knowledge sharing on Twitter. And I'm still on there, or X, 
but it's very degraded now. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's another, you know, the information ecosystem's changing and, and, and you have to use it wisely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, to conclude, I'm going to ask you a difficult question about democracy. It's not, it's difficult because it's an open-ended question, but if you had, if you were on a show that didn't give you one hour, and I'm really grateful that you've given me one hour, but you had 30 seconds to say, why be in favor of democracy? And that's Mencken's question, really. He says, you can't just sell this project to people and make it as if it's self-evident. You have to tell them what is good for them about, or what is good about democracy. What would you think would be two or three points to tell people why Is it worth it? Why is it worth thinking about? And why is your work so important to say, I'm not here as a Cassandra ringing the alarm bells too early and saying this is actually vitally important because once it's gone, it's gone. It doesn't just come back overnight. What's the project of democracy and why should I care about it? I think one important thing is it promotes individual agency and critical thinking and self-knowledge also in the end. One of the saddest things that authoritarianism does, it, it puts you in situations where you have to betray yourself, where you feel you have to. You feel you have to betray yourself and your loved ones. And democracy will never ask you to do that uh, as a political system. It teaches you to tolerate difference and, and even maybe embrace difference, but also to feel hopeful that you can have a a say in shaping your future and your collective future. And, and that's, that's builds on our natural um, propensity when we're children to, to create worlds through play and have a sense of the future and optimism. And so that's all the terrain of democracy and certainly not authoritarianism. Yeah. Authoritarianism is the opposite. It wants you to be despairing and submissive and close down your horizon. I, I love this idea that in democracy, you can be true to yourself, which is then, yes. which means for everybody on their own terms. It's not one self yes. that's conformist or identi- identical, but actually true to yourself. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Ruth. I want to uh, tell our listeners, you are at, uh, there's ruthbengiat.com, which is your website. You can, people can subscribe to your Substack, so you get the your interviews, sort of updates on what you're doing. You're very active in media, obviously, and I really appreciate that you send us these kind of notifications on MSNBC and the book Strong Men, uh, Mussolini to the Present in a 2021 edition now with a um, kind of afterward, which also addresses the pandemic and what's happening in the world. And uh, I just want to thank you and applaud you for doing this work in this kind of pragmatic way of saying, I'm trying to do my part to actually allow people to think for themselves and sort of say, I'm not having a prognosis of what's going to happen, but this is a moment to actually let people think about this. So I really want to thank you for that and for your time today. Thank you. I enjoyed it.